I wanted to take a little break uh, from our Romans series today uh, intentionally based on our discussion last week. Last week, we opened up a dialogue of, of not just how God saves a man, but what God saves him to. This idea that God never saves anybody, he doesn't transform. Remember that? So there's a significant series of questions that I've had asked me, and and I think people naturally ask when it comes to the issue of ongoing sin in our life. If it's true that God just doesn't transfer our address from hell to heaven, but he also is working on my life to transform me into the image of Jesus, the question comes up many times, I don't know if I feel that transformed. I struggle more than maybe you describe. So this is really a look at God's grace in the midst of habitual sin. Because I think the Bible has something to say to the church regarding how we fight, okay? And that's how it feels sometimes unless you've decided to quit. And that's, that's pretty predominant in the church too. And that's where people can accuse the church of just being grace users because after all, once you understand God did everything, you have to do nothing and just lay back and receive, right? And yet God has so much to say about how he works obedience in his children that we need to look at some of the the struggles that we've had. We have spent weeks now looking at not just the, the justification of God, although it's beautiful as it is, every time I read it, I, I kind of smile and go, this, this is so good. I, every time I read it, I'm blown away. That apart from any work that I could do, any religion I can offer, any prayers, any, anything at all, there's nothing that I can do on my own to merit a holy God to show favor on me to such a degree that he saves me from my sins, forgives me so completely and totally, Amen. So God's grace comes to sinners who can't accomplish anything on their own. In in other words, as as unbelievable as it sounds, the distance between a holy God and sinful man has been bridged, and the problem of sin has been settled. We, We have been forgiven people. It is finished, as Jesus said. It is a complete work. Nothing else ever has to happen again. Nothing else added to what God does in us to, to make us any more holy than we already are holy. We've been covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. So positionally, as, as mind-blowing as it might be, nothing else is going to happen to us or for us that makes God think anything better of us in the future. Amen? It is a complete work. Holy and complete. But <laughs> sometimes it doesn't feel like it's complete. And if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes the church doesn't act like this thing that God has provided through Jesus by faith is so real to us. And sometimes we don't feel that connected to the work of God and the Spirit. In fact, sometimes we wonder how come my life looks so much like my old life? Why do I still think about the things I used to think about? Why do I bump into the same expressions and the same fears or the same angers that I said I renounced when I came to Jesus? Why, when the Bible describes this new man in Christ, why do I sometimes not look like the new man? Anybody in here say amen to that? You should have asked that question. If you're a believer, there is this holy war, okay? The holy war is this God-authored soul in you at constant conflict with this flesh that it's wrapped in. And the flesh is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is contrary to the flesh, and they're banging into each other every day. And the flesh wants what it wants, and the spirit of God in me wants what it wants. And there's this war. And a lot of friends of mine, a lot of Christians that I know, myself included, lose a lot of those battles. So, 
After last week's message of seeing not only God's certainty in salvation, but also his interest in transformation, not just justification, but sanctification, that God is going to complete us from salvation to glory, all that's going to happen. Sometimes we carry around with us expressions that don't look anything like transformed. So the question that we want to answer today is why is it so hard? Because I've prayed in my 30-some years of being a believer, I have prayed. I said, God, listen, listen please, I'll do anything. Just, just throw some, like, magic, miracle stuff on me. Just make it just disappear. I'm tired of fighting. You ever say that? Yeah, of course you have. So I wanted to take you to a passage. We're going to do a sneak preview on Romans 7 a little bit. There is a particular section of Scripture in Romans 7, verses 15 through 21, where Paul sounds like he's reading my journal. And I don't even have a journal. So this is really incredible. (laughs) There is a very conflicting paragraph that Paul writes here, but it, it makes total sense to people who love Jesus. He describes this holy war. And he describes it this way, starting in verse 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'll, we'll have the text up on the screen for you. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. Anybody say amen to that? Listen, that paragraph right there describes my greatest frustration in my entire life. Everything that I want about being totally myopic about Jesus to such a degree that everything pales by comparison, all the things that offer themselves as an artificial like satisfaction or another version of having joy apart from God, all those things get exposed for what they are. They're lies, and I choose God every time. But... I don't. I've read the Bible from cover to cover several times. I study it, and then I still go for the bait. It's a struggle, right? It is this holy war that Paul is talking about. Now, I want to read you something else that Paul has said. I want you to turn to the right. Keep your finger in Romans. Turn to the right and look at uh, Colossians chapter 3. And I want you to pay attention to uh, imperatives, like specific action steps, the commands for the church about how we now live in this relationship with Jesus, how we live based on the leading of the Holy Spirit. So he says many things in this verse 1 through 10 of chapter 3 of Colossians, and uh, I want to contrast and compare that to Romans 7. So let's read it together. Verse 1, Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ. Okay, Christian, listen up. That's what he's saying. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here's the list. 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you are you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul puts down for us in Colossians 3 a series of uh, so what's, what we are to do, imperatives, commands. Things like verse 2, set your mind on things above, change where you think. In verse 5, put to death sin. Reminds us a little bit of what we talked about last week, and we'll get to again in another week. But verse 10 also says, put on the new self. Now, there are things in there that Paul suggests that a Christian does to deal with past stuff, sins and inclinations of the flesh. And all I've got to say about this as a Christian who's known this passage for a long time is this. Sometimes. Isn't that true? Aren't you sometimes motivated to think about the new man? Aren't you sometimes motivated to to put away with the flesh and all the evil behaviors? Aren't you sometimes more driven by a love of God than your own flesh and desires that you choose him instead of choosing your stuff? Isn't that sometimes? Yeah. You can read some of this sometimes idealistically and look like, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, I got it. I'm wired. No more struggle, no more sin, no more failure. But clearly that doesn't match up. One with our experience also with Paul's experience from Romans 7. Because I identify more with that paragraph in Romans 7 than I do with Colossians 3. I'm just trying to be honest. So, have you ever prayed this prayer? It's the, like the most basic prayer a Christian would ever pray. God help. Have you ever prayed that one? And I'm talking about the struggle. I'm talking about the cosmic conflict of sin versus righteousness within you. When you say, God, it's so hard for me. I can't win this. I I want to go with you, but I don't want to go. Have you ever just prayed, God, help, rescue? Have you ever said, dive into time and space and do some kind of magic right now to transform all of my circumstances so that I have no other choice but to please you? I have prayed that a thousand times. Have you ever showed up to communion? You know, the communion has some structure to it, has some order to it, to do it in a worthy manner, which means just come transparent. Don't come lying and don't come abusing. Just come as a person who's a sinner who receives what these elements represent. The body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. And so we come as sinners with all sorts of gory stories. And we say, God, again, here it is. But here's your communion experience. You show up and you confess the same things over and over and over again. In fact, you've got it wired to such a degree now, you've got like, okay, God, I'm confessing A and three, and so you've got numbers for them because they're so consistent in your life. It happens, doesn't it? And don't you walk out sometimes just feeling like, ah, uh, there I am again. You ever feel hopeless? Ever feel like, I don't know if there's ever gonna be change? You ever feel like there's nothing you can do, that it's just your struggle? I have talked to enough people and enough people recently to just look in faces and see no hope. Like there's no, like behind their 
confessed faith and their, their de- declaration that Jesus is their Lord, they kind of go, I guess I'm going to get heaven. But from here to heaven, they don't see any future. They don't see any wins. They don't see transformation. And so they say things like, I guess it's just the way I am. I can't help it. I've tried. So if that's you this morning, then that's why we interrupted Romans, to kind of put a second message on the transformation discussion, because we have to answer some questions. Jesus said this in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. What was he talking about? Because sometimes I don't feel that free. Do you? Like free indeed. You mean free from the tyranny of sin and free from the expression of it in my life or my desire for it? Like totally free? Because it doesn't feel that way. Paul said, um, and we're going to get to it even next week in Romans chapter 6, referring to the imagery of being dead uh, uh, towards sin, he says in verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from sin. They both, Jesus and Paul, are talking about the same thing. We are set free from the manipulation and control of sin. So if you were here last week, we talked about the reality of being tethered to sin to such a degree that all I can do is constantly rebel against God until God, through Jesus, by faith, cuts that tether, and now I'm free to choose righteousness and choose him by his power working in me right? Before, my righteous deeds, the best I could offer were like filthy rags to God. Now, I can legitimately offer a true right offering. So, as a, as a believer, the first words out of your believing mouth were, I love Jesus. That's the first thing that you were allowed to do, that God broke the tether of sin. You couldn't do that before. You couldn't say, he's my Lord. You couldn't say, I love him. You couldn't say, I follow him until God gave you the changed heart to See separation from sin, amen? And every other expression from your life, whether it's confessing of sin or making relationships with right or leaving some behavior or pattern behind, it's all a work of God. So the phrase is referring to the manipulation and control of sin. So I did want to take a break and talk about the struggle that every Christian I have ever met understands. It is the part of us, the person who loves Jesus, this is the part of us we hate the most. And just to give you a word of caution, I don't have a magic pill for you. I don't have a magic message. There isn't no special words to hear. There isn't 12 steps to apply to your life to have resolution to the struggle of sin. But there is under th- things to understand. And one of them is that it takes time. S- someone once said that it takes twice as long to overcome an ingrained sin in your life than it took for you to build it. So if you've been sinning the same way for 60 years, you've got to live a long time to see that one one. I think there's some truth to it, that the work that you have to put in to resist the patterns that you build is a lot more work because the sin seems to come just pretty easy. The flesh does what it does without much help. But I do want you to leave here today with hope. Sinful habits can be replaced Pure thoughts and actions can happen, and it starts with a right understanding of what God has said about sin and struggle. So, have you ever asked the question, why is the temptation to sin so powerful? I mean, if we're, if we're just being really honest about our experience with it, there is a like magnetic draw to what we choose to do that goes against God. And it's unconscious. So when you go to defend yourself or fight against somebody else, what rises up in you, you don't even identify. It's this pride thing. It's this wanting to be right or not wanting to be wrong. It just comes 
in us. And after we have a chance to reflect on it, have you ever asked yourself the question, how did that happen? Why, why is the draw so strong? Because God has, I know, he has all power to do all things, right? Couldn't, couldn't God change that inclination? Yes? He certainly could. Couldn't he make it easier? Couldn't he always be one step ahead of us, helping? I mean, God wants us to live holy lives, right? God wants obedience from his children, right? Not, not to be accepted, but as an expression of already being accepted. Doesn't he want us to obey as well? Of course he does. God could do a couple of things to help us. He could deal with the tempter. I mean, Satan's role in, in this world is to somehow tell God's people that God is lying. To keep people who are in the dark in the dark, keep them there. They can never get out of the dark. To believe that their versions of life and happiness apart from God will work, and it doesn't. But people go to hell with that thought in mind. And yet he comes after Christians and somehow tells Christians, just like he did in the, art, in the garden with Adam and Eve, hey, God's holding out on you. There's something better for you, and God doesn't want you to see it, and so you go and get it yourself. God could get in the way of the tempter, couldn't he? He could put him in timeout. He could stick him in a corner somewhere and say, okay, leave my people alone. Do not suggest false gods or other ways. Just stay out of the way. He could do that, couldn't he? But he doesn't. God could, and I know this, James says that each one of us, when we sin, when we fail, are drug away and, and enticed by our own evil desires, God could take a cold bucket of water and throw it on our passions, couldn't he? Because what comes out of us is what we really, really want, like instinctively. And so if you're one of those people that are driven and you want, you're controlling everything else, God could just take your big, huge passion knob and go, mm, dial it down to about a two. So you're fairly apathetic about everything. You, you're indifferent. Oh, okay. Whatever. But the problem is these passions, these zeals are in every one of us, and we go that way. God could throw a bucket of water on our passions, couldn't he? God could also rearrange our schedules. He could always be one step in front of every dip, dip, uh, particular thing in our life. And where there'd be a failure, where there'd be a shank, where there'd be invitation of someone to suggest evil or temptation, he could always be just one step ahead of us. Like, what if he was one step ahead of David before David walked out on the palace roof and saw Bathsheba? What if Bathsheba was taking a shower, you know, in the palace, and he never saw her? He, we wouldn't have an affair, and we wouldn't have a baby out of wedlock, and nobody would be dead. God could have helped out his boy. He could have said, listen, David, I love you. You have a heart after me, so I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you away from things like that. But he didn't. And he doesn't. He doesn't do that for any one of us. So the question is, why the hard way? Because God either causes or allows all things. And so he is allowing or he's causing how difficult this particular journey about our sin is. So what could be the possible reason for temptation and struggle? Why does it have to be a fight? I got three things for you to remember. Here's the first one. Because God is testing our love for him. He's testing our love for him. And don't forget this, that, that temptation, even with all the possibility of failure, is God's way of, of seeing our heart, to test our love for him. Let me use an illustration you're completely aware, with, uh, aware of. In, in uh, Genesis and in, in Exodus, you, you hear the story of God's people. Now, first of all, in Genesis, you have the story of, of Abraham. Abraham, uh, we've just got done dialoguing about Abraham, using him from uh, the illustrations of, of Paul in Romans. But Abraham was a man who... Uh, had a relationship with God based on faith. 
It was credited to him of righteousness because he believed God. And God promised him a great uh, number of descendants. He took them outside, said, look at the stars. Can you count them? No. Well, your kids are going to outnumber what you can count. And so after many, many years, he's an old man. God gives him. He delivers on the promise. Here's Isaac. And somewhere in Isaac's lifetime, some say like a young man, teenager, years, 13 or whatever, God says, okay, Abraham, I want you to take your son. I want you to take the promised son. I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to take him off to this mountain. I want you to sacrifice his life there for me. Now, the the text doesn't show any kind of internal struggle or argument that Abraham had with God. But as a father, I know somewhere inside of Abraham, he went, how is this good? Like, you, you said that I was going to have descendants. And I waited around till I was 100 years old for you to deliver on your promise. And now he's here. He's healthy. I love him. Things are going good. And you want me to kill him? Now, it doesn't say that. But Abraham was a normal dad, just like you are. And there's got to be things in his mind that we don't see in the text that tell us, like, God, I'm not certain I understand this. But all we know of the story is that Abraham marches off to the mountain, builds an altar for his son, lays his son on the altar, takes out a knife about to take his son's, the promised son's life, the fulfillment of all of an old man's wishes. And God says, stop, Abraham, now I know. You gotta believe that with all the possibility of failure in Abraham's life to believe God in spite of what he, you know, was called to do, that it was a moment in time where he got to say, I love God more than I love Isaac. I love God's word more than I love my version of joy. I believe God more than I believe my own eyesight. So it was the strong temptation in Abraham to say no that gave him the opportunity to say yes to God. Do you understand? If there was nothing but clear sailing for every Christian and proper fences so that all we can do is go right, there would be no way for us to choose to love God based on the transformation of the compass of the heart. If once we were trapped in our sin, unable to respond to God, and God frees us from that, and now we have a heart that loves him and wants to please him, well, given those moments of difficulty, I get to express that affection. I get to love him. So why is it so hard for us to walk out of conversations that are gossipy and slanderous? Why is it hard for us to keep working hard when the boss isn't looking? Why is it hard um, to turn off the computer even though we know how to erase our history? Why is it hard not to get angry at other people? Why is it hard not to take the second look? Why doesn't God protect us from those situations? I want to use a word. God is allowing us the luxury of difficult choices to say out loud that we love him. It's a privilege given the choice between what the world has to offer and the choice between what God has done, it's a luxury for us to say, I love God, right? Even though with all the potential of failure and the the inclination of the flesh to go that direction, it is a luxury to prove our love. So the question this morning is, do you love him? When all the difficult stuff comes, do you love him? Remember, how you and I respond to this is an accurate measure of that love for God and all the idols in our life. Because idols, um, 
Every one of us have them. They're a series of things, whether they're comfort or whether they're money or whether they're pride or whatever those things are. Those are things we don't communicate and don't talk about, but they sit around on our little shelf, our little idol shelf, and we have Jesus and we have these other things. And what we say with our life is, I, need, I want Jesus and I need these things. And God is so jealous for his glory. He won't share with another. There's only one God and he is coming after those idols, every one of them. And where you see your inclination and go, I want, to want, I want to wander from God, then you're getting a good picture of where those things are in your life, right? There's a second reason God doesn't make our choices easier, and that is um, because temptation develops our character. You, you should know this already by now. But all the struggles, all the failures, all the sin are used by God somehow to mature us. God can take garbage like that and produce fruit. That's amazing to me. They are God's magnifying glass. It's like where you feel, where you struggle, where you confess most of the time, where you feel insecure. God just reveals, hey, I'm showing you what I'm going to do. I'm showing you where you struggle and those things that are outside of my grace. I'm showing you those things you say you need plus me. I'm going to go after those things. God is faithful to reveal them, and he matures us in the midst of our problems, right? He uses struggles like that. Now, let me use another illustration of Israel. Again, a story you're familiar with. Israel enslaved in Egypt to a brutal man and country. Uh, 400 years, God comes to rescue. And he does it in amazing ways. He brings an average guy like Moses to lead the most powerful man in the world to his senses about God's call. So all these plagues all these consequences to, to Egypt in order for him to say, okay, I tap out, go ahead, have your freedom. Two million Jews walk off into the desert to a place that God says is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a promised land. It's everything I had for you. Now, I can only imagine what Israel is like, okay? Like joy and I can't believe it. Pinch yourself, it's too good to be true. We're finally free. God is good, he is faithful. They get out in the desert a little ways, right? And we have all sudden Egypt coming to their senses about what they just gave up and so they come after him and God steps up again. And he guards them by a pillar of fire and he opens the Red Sea and the people of God walk through on dry ground and God destroys the armies that chase. And you would think on the other side they'd go, oh, I'm never, ever, ever not going to believe God. God has done X, Y, Z over and over again, miracles all over me. How could I ever rebel? And just a couple years in the desert, and their attitudes go south, and not just sort of south, not just a bad day. They turn into bad people. God's not fair. I'm hungry. I don't like what you're feeding me. Sound like your kids. Um, <laughs> I'm impatient. Where's this promised land? God, you're taking too long. Moses, you're a bad leader. I mean, these people who saw God deliver them in such clear ways, like I've always said, if God would just do a little of that for me, I'd be 10 times the man I am now. But clearly, I don't understand the human heart because that's me. God has done spiritually for me what he has done practically for the people of Israel, and I still wander. And you hear the people of God who uh, see all those wonderful things and then Moses writes this about them and God's intentions with them in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He was testing their loyalties. He was bringing out their rebellion. And that's what temptation does. 
It brings out the best and the worst in us. Stuff that God alone can work on. See, the Israelites didn't realize how rebellious they were until they got hungry. And they didn't know how impatient they were until they wandered for 40 years. And they didn't know how prone to wander spiritually they were until Moses stayed in the mountain too long. You understand? And all these scenarios created within their hearts this rebellious against God to such a degree, they build a false image and start doing pagan worship in light of all they've seen the one and only God do. That should say volumes about what's in us. Those situations brought the impurities to the surface. The same is true for us, right? So all the scenarios, the common scenarios, the average everyday scenarios are the ones in which God reveals us. So having kids. Those of you who are parents, you know that when you had kids, things came out of you. You didn't know were in you. Right? Marriage does the same thing. Money does the same thing. Sickness does the same thing. Health does the same thing. Retirement does the same thing. Striving does the same thing. Everything that's common to man, God uses to reveal us. Things we call normal and good, God says, well, let me just show you what's in there. And he's faithful. So God wants to grow our character. His intentions are the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness and self-control. And to get us there, sin has to be exposed. It has to be dealt with. So just like we've learned from James, we've studied James in the last couple of years, but James chapter one says for the church to consider it joy to encounter trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. God has a plan to mature his people. He's more into it by far than we ever would be. And difficult things like trials and temptations, God somehow can take and weave them together to grow us. And the way he grows us is to reveal our problems and lack and then the gospel superabounds again. Amen? The one last reason um, the temptation uh, that God uses in our life, why he doesn't just help us out, because he gets to, sh- he gets to show off in our struggles. Um, these words that we use kind of casually, they show up in songs and we like to celebrate them, but we don't think about them much. His grace and his power go on display in our weakness. Right? So it's kind of like Paul has said in Romans 5, we've read this last couple of weeks, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful kindness became more abundant. Or as Paul says, grace superabounded. Grace increased. Where you failed and couldn't, God overabounded over your sin. So God's grace goes on display. God's glory gets shown off in our inability. It doesn't make grace abusers. It makes God lovers. Do you understand all the, all the accusations against the church that if someone really gets grace, they'll wander off and abuse it. That isn't true. Grace compels obedience, if you really understand it. The other thing that we know from the scriptures from Paul's own life is that God's power, God's super abundant overcoming power happens in our weakness. So he says this, I'm sure you're familiar with it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking about his own life and a particular struggle with, he calls it a thorn in the flesh. Now, I want you to hear how it reads, and I'm going to make my own kind of, my own uh, commentary on the passage, but here's what he says. To keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more uh, gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Um, I have wrestled with this passage for years. I've listened to many, many sermons on this passage. I have my own interpretation. So please understand this is my commentary, not necessarily everyone's commentary. But I've, I've read enough of Paul's life to wonder what could his thorn in the flesh be. And some have said that Paul had bad eyesight. Paul wanted to read and write better than he could. and He didn't want to have help. And so he was bothered by his eyesight and his thorn in the flesh that he couldn't see. So he asked God to give his eyesight. And God said, no. Some have said that there was a divisive person, a brother, a wolf in sheep clothing in another ministry that was making life miserable hell for Paul. And so Paul prayed against that guy, messing up his ministry. And, and yet I think it's another more relatable scenario. Paul was a man who wrote down his struggles with the gospel, that he went into harm's way for the gospel, shipwrecked multiple times, stoned, beaten, almost to death, hungry, starved, naked, without home. I mean, he, he expressed what it was like to believe the gospel, and yet he gloried in suffering for Jesus. So I'm just trying to picture a tough guy like Paul going, I can't see. Right, he gets all done with the beatings of the shipwreck and the persecution of hunger. He goes, yeah, but I, I want to see. Like, I can't picture him whining like that. Nor a guy as aggressive as he was to even confront Peter. This is a guy who was a stud when it came to truth that some divisive brother wasn't within his capability to manage. I think there's one particular thing that's equal to every person I've ever lived that makes sense to Romans 7. is Paul struggled with something he hated that was in the way of what he thought God wanted to do. Perhaps a sin struggle. Perhaps he had, a, he like you, like I do sometimes, you look at your life and you go, you know, God, this would, I could be so better effective if I wasn't an angry man. I, I would be so better if, if I didn't struggle in this way or if I didn't want those things or if I didn't go this direction. God, you could use me so much better. And so I can imagine Paul, who really cares for the glory of God and for ministry, I could really see Paul going, God, I'm asking. Just get this sin out of my life. Get this struggle out of my life, and it'll go great. And God said, hmm. my power, my ability, my glory gets escalated in your weakness. I go on display in your inability. God superabounds, not just in grace to cover you, but superabounds in power to use you blows my mind. Now, I, again, that's me, so don't run out of here and say God said, Tim said, okay? But I believe it fits with the character of Paul and what he's written here in Romans 7. And the reality is I think we can all relate as well. I want you to think for a second of that particular sin. When I brought up the habitual sin thing, what did you go to? In your own mind. You know, is it anger? Is it lust? Is it, is it a a bitter heart? Is it a secret sin? Is it man's approval? Is it control? What, what, what is that one? You just ask God multiple times, like, God, would you remove this from my life and I'll be good to go? Would you do a special thing for me? Well, I want you to understand that God has the power to overcome it and he has the power to work through it. His desire is to track it down and tear it out of our lives. And he'll use circumstances. He'll use time. He'll use whatever. God is, is not limited by whatever to deal with our sin. And I know some of us right now in this room are at a place where you're looking at your struggle and sin and you're more overwhelmed with it than you are with your God. And, uh, 
And you kind of throw up your hands and say, well, I guess this is the way it is. I'm going to have to live with this forever. I, I really am hopeless. I mean, I believe in Jesus. I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I've got a heaven to look forward to. But as far as from here to heaven, you have not a lot of hope about you. Why doesn't God take it away? Why doesn't God rescue it? Why doesn't God just hem you in and force you to obey? Why? Because he's offering you the luxury to say, I love him more than my idols. I love him more than the other things that glitter. I know the difference between righteousness and sinfulness. I know it. And there are times when I can, to the power of the Spirit, say yes to godliness and no to sinfulness, right? That's a luxury to say I love him, just like he did for Abraham. He wants to grow our character. He has plans for us we don't have. He sees things in us that we don't even know. His plans are perfect and they will happen. He is not limited by you or your cooperation. He will transform you. And he gets to show off. I love the fact that nobody's gonna be confused on who gets the glory in the story. Nobody's gonna be confused. When it's all said and done, you and I are gonna stand before the Father and go, he did it. No, he did it. Everything, he did it. So how do you fight? Can I leave you with a couple of things? Because you're going to go out of here going, maybe, maybe some of you go, oh, that's good. You know, I, I need to know that, that he's working through my struggles and I get a chance to say I love him and ultimately all these things are, are true. He gets to show off and I like that and it's about his glory. But what do you walk out of here doing and thinking? I want you to remember this, that there is no sin that's irresistible. Part of the lie of Satan is that he somehow convicts convinces us that there is this sin or two or three in our own life that you just can't help yourself. It's irresistible. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God gives every believer windows He gives you a place to get out. Now, I'm going to give you a little secret to understanding your ability to perceive these places, okay? Depending upon your proximity to God and your time spent with him, you'll either see them or you won't. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you don't spend any time in his word, not because God thinks it's like there's brownie points for people who read and brownie points for for people who pray more, just your proximity, your desire to know him and be like him and to love him. If you're close to God in prayer and the word, then the soul part of you, the God-authored part of you is built up and strong. When temptation comes, I can promise you which voice will do the talking. If you deny the scriptures and say, I'm just gonna go it alone and you don't pray and you don't read and you just spend most of your time just coping, coping with your life and fighting and wrestling with the things, the temptation of the world, then when the temptation comes, I can promise you, what's probably going to come out of you then? Like these two voices, the the flesh is screaming and the soul is screaming. Which one do you feed? Whichever one you feed is the one who'll do the talking. Does this make sense? The other thing I want you to be uh, remembering is this, that there is no sin that's unforgivable. If there is um, anything that Satan has done to cripple the church, it's to convince him that somehow the sin you're dealing with is, is the one or the behavior Or the lifestyle that God says, that's it. That's the one I can't deal with. So, you cannot out-sin God's grace. Amen? You cannot 
out-sin his faithfulness or his promise, amen? God is committed to the work he started in you because it had nothing to do with you. God covered you in his grace through Jesus alone by faith, of which he gave you, according to Ephesians chapter two. It is not on you. God is gonna finish this. So when you have the adversary tell you, hey, you're back here again, that's that sin, you keep doing that one? Maybe you should back up. Maybe you're not his. Maybe, maybe it's you. That's a classic lie. And the way it gets expressed is that people have a tendency to try to fix their problems before they come back to God. So you'd be sitting in a service and feel all convicted and you feel like a hypocrite because you don't want to take communion, you don't want to worship. So you say, I'm going to go spend a couple of weeks living the right kind of life. So when I come back, God will be more pleased and think I'm more honest than I was before. Do you not understand that God sees your heart and your motives? And God is not won over by man-made righteousness. It's God's people who fall back into Jesus and grace. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do not believe the lie that somehow you've got to fix your problem before you come back to your God. Here's one last thing to remember. Maybe I actually got two. <laughs> remember that there's no sin that's undefeatable. So we've got, clearly, there's no sin irresistible, no sin unforgivable, no sin undefeatable. If you're looking at that failure of your life, that classic one or two that you have, and you go, I guess it's just the way it's going to have to be. This is going to be my thorn. I want you to understand something that Paul said to Titus in Titus 2. God's grace brings salvation, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I don't know when it's going to happen. I mean, I, I know when it's going to be completed in glory, but between here and glory, you are becoming. You're always being transformed. There are sins, Christian, in your life that you used to do, according to Paul, that you don't do anymore. There might be some sins you're still fighting through, but you can't ever say, ever say to God, well, that sin, that's undefeatable. That one's going to be there because God can transform it. And I believe if there's a key word to carry around with you as a believer, it's the word thankfulness. Because I think, I think if you were thankful, I don't think you'd sin. I, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but I'm just, I'm just picturing every reason why we choose to rebel against God. Isn't it because we think we need something else? Isn't it come from this desire that, that God didn't do enough, that I'm not thankful enough for the gospel or salvation in Jesus, that somehow there is another, there's another thing I need to have, amount of money I need to have, another person I need to have, another like idol or win or loss. I need to have those things plus Jesus. And isn't thankfulness like the key to that? And so if I'm thankful, I won't steal because I'm content. I won't lust because I choose to love and I'm thankful for the love that God gives me we're bitter because we're selfish and we're consumed with our rights and feelings, but if I'm not consumed with my rights but the, the gospel and Jesus, will I not stop being bitter, possibly? Will I forgive people who do sin against me? Of course I would because I would be so thankful for the forgiveness I've received in Jesus. You understand everything's directly connected to how much you appreciate about what God has done. One last thing, and I have to tell you this because I think the adversary would say the opposite. Just remember this. That when you sin, the only reason you sin is because you really, really want to. Nobody makes you. It's the choice, the flesh choice, that war, that cosmic, you know, holy war that's going on between the God-authored soul that, that is fully made perfect in Jesus and the flesh that it's wrapped in that tries to war with that. 
James 1, and I told it to you last week. Everybody who is a Christian can't look at God and say, God, this thing's on you. Because he'll say, each one of you is drug away and enticed by your own evil desire. You do what you want to do. So, that's the encouragement today, church. <laughs> yeah? I think it's encouraging because I'm looking at sin in a different way now. As opposed to loss and failure, I look at it as a platform to say I love Jesus. I can look at it now as God's using bad things to accomplish good things. I, I might not see that if I'm only concerned with the, the specifics. I understand that God's grace and power goes on display, and I'm all over that. I love that. If there's more of God and less of me, I, I like that. And clearly my weakness shows that. And so God has made a way out of my sin. I can't say it's unforgivable because God has covered my sin. Everything's been completed. Your sin is not the problem anymore. You get it? Because we've got Jesus, amen? Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this truth. I pray for the church. I pray for us. It is so like us to battle and then battle alone because we think maybe we should know better or do better. But yet that is another lie from Satan, the adversary who wants to convince us that somehow we're not measuring up. The only reason any of us stand is because of Jesus. And we only know through the scriptures that Jesus has a plan. Your spirit has a plan for our life to make us into the image of Christ. God, I'm so thankful that you're committed to that plan and that you will carry it out to fruition. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Take care. We'll see you next Sunday.